The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the seventh Doctor story, The Curse of Fenric. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stiga. Hey, Father Corey. How's it going, Dom? Very well, thanks. And Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to get your very own Secrets of Doctor Who t-shirt or phone case or a bunch of other things like mugs or whatever with our shining happy mugs on them by visiting sqpn.com slash merch. Uh, you'll also want to check out another show here on the StarQuest Network that you're sure to enjoy called Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. You can find that wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And finally, I want to tell you to stay uh, tuned to this podcast to the very end because we have some great feedback on our previous episodes. So, uh, but this one we're talking about the curse of Fenric. This is a seventh doctor story. And Jimmy, can you give us a recap of what happens? Oh boy, this one is packed. <laughs> um, despite the fact it's only four parts. So here we go. It's world war two and the seventh doctor and ace land in the North of England for a bit of British folk horror. Uh, they've come to visit Dr. Judson, a wheelchair-bound codebreaker who has invented a codebreaking device called the Ultra Machine. Unbeknownst to the Doctor and Ace, British intelligence is using the Ultra Machine as bait for the Russian government, figuring that the Russians won't be allies after the war is over. They want the Russians to seal the machine. Inside of it will be a container of a horrific poison that British intelligence will be able to trigger using a code word planted in one of the messages the machine will decrypt. When the poison is released, it should theoretically kill everyone in the Kremlin. And indeed, a group of Russian soldiers also shows up planning to steal the device. The poison comes from a Norse mythological site under the Anglican Parish Church, and British intelligence has created a massive stockpile of the poison to drop on German cities and end the war more quickly. Also below the church are Norse inscriptions left by Vikings who visited the area in the 9th century carrying treasures from the Orient. But they were struck by a curse and eventually died, though they had descendants first. Their ship sank in a bay off Maiden's Point, and over the centuries people have been drawn to the bay where they were turned into vampires. This happened because in the future, humanity turns into vampires known as hemovores, which is Greek and Latin for blood eaters. And one of them, known as the Ancient One, has been brought back in time and lives at the bottom of the bay. Eventually, the Viking inscriptions are all decoded, and it causes the vampires to attack. One of the Oriental treasures the Vikings also brought contains an ancient evil from the beginning of the universe that the Doctor has fought before. The Norsemen call it Fenric, and it wants to bring about Ragnarok or the end of the world. Fenric takes control of Dr. Judson, who can now walk, and it summons the Ancient One, who it refers to as the Great Serpent of Norse mythology that will poison the world at Ragnarok. Fenric has the Ancient One telepathically kill all the vampires, all the other vampires, and he orders it to take the poison to the bay and dump enough to kill everyone in the world. This will also create the future in which humanity becomes the Hemovores. But Fenric can't resist a challenge to the Doctor, who banished him to the Shadow Dimension 17 centuries ago in a game of chess. The Doctor sets up the pieces of the chessboard the way it was back then and tells Fenric there is a move he can make that will cause him to win the game. Fenric can't figure it out, but after he jumps into a new body, Ace accidentally blurts out the move without realizing that she's telling it to Fenric. Fenric then wins the game and reveals that he's been manipulating things ever since Iceworld when the Doctor first met Ace. He caused the time storm that brought the two of them together. All of the descendants of the cursed Vikings, including Judson, the Ancient One, and even Ace herself, are wolves of Fenric, and he has influence over them. The Doctor says he knew all this from the start. Uh, Fenric orders the Ancient One to kill the Doctor and Ace, but offers to let Ace live if the Doctor will kneel before him. 
Ace has absolute faith in the doctor, and this gives her a psychic shield that stops the Ancient One from moving. But when told how to save Ace, the doctor says, kill her. He then says a bunch of deliberately cruel, dismissive things about Ace, that he knew there was evil in her, and that he wouldn't have wasted his time on such an emotionally crippled social misfit if he wasn't going to use her in some way. This breaks Ace's faith in the Doctor, and the Ancient One begins moving. But instead of killing the Doctor and Ace, he pushes Fenric into a biohazard chamber and uses the poison to kill himself and Fenric. Afterwards, the Doctor explains to an inconsolable Ace that he had to break her faith in him to save them and defeat Fenric, but that none of the things he said about her were true. The End Sorry, I was just thinking, thanks for coming to this episode. <laughs> was a dark dude. Wow, I mean, that is that is a lot going on yeah. in this four-parter. Uh, yeah, very, it's intense. It's I, very convoluted. I mean, this is one I'd seen many, many times. I, you know, I, it, again, you know, when I was watching Doctor Who, the seventh Doctor stories were still coming out, and so I saw this one was fairly new. And I forgot how confusing it can be. I mean, there's things, you know, threads going left, right, up, and down, and it's pretty yeah. impressive, actually, what they packed into less than two hours yet i i kind of felt like they it was too complex like there were too many threads i felt like it's at times like they made the story too too big and it could have been a two-parter for the for the if to make it a better story i think it was just they, they tried to pack too much in i don't know what did you think i i, I liked it mm-hmm. i enjoyed it for i mean I oftentimes I I don't enjoy them as much as I enjoyed this. I thought this is a better than average episode mm-hmm. or story. It I liked all the stuff they packed into it. Yeah, I think they could have been clearer on a few points, but I would just view this as somewhat somewhat demanding television. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not talking down to us. It's not spoon feeding us information the way a lot do. You have to consciously pay attention to get everything. But I think you can get it on a first watch. I guess, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with you, Jimmy. It's it's a it's a it's a very enjoyable episode. It is, like I said, it's confusing, and, and part of it is because they're doing the doctor knows something, but he's not telling because like he, he mm-hmm. this was all part of his kind of his plan. And this is you know speaking of plan, this is, of course is part of the Cartmel Master plan of you know making the doctor more mysterious and having background we don't know. And uh, and that brought part of it is some of the confusion was just because there were things that were revealed at the end that clarified the whole rest of the episode. But we didn't know it at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess so. Uh, yeah, I, I felt like there were a lot, a lot of th- like different threads being spooled out, and at times it was, con- it was uh, at the end it brought them all back together again. But in the course of the the you know the four stories, the four episodes, it was there was a lot like here, there, and everywhere. I'm like, what is that doing? Like, oh, now we have vampires. <laughs> like, yeah. That uh, just you know, Vikings and vampires and uh, Russian soldiers and World War oh, II. My. And <laughs> it was a lot of future going on. humans. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it is a lot, but I found it very compelling. Um, I like the folk horror mm-hmm. vibe of this. Um, for, for people who may not be familiar, British folk horror is typically. It's a genre. It's frequently consists of period pieces, so they may not be set in the present. And this is set in World War II. And it's always in a rural British environment. So it's 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 not in the middle of London. It's in it's in the boonies somewhere. And people encounter supernatural, preternatural things, and that's where the horror comes from. And so this is a and vampires is a common thing mm-hmm. in British folk horror. Like if you watch movies like Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter, um, it will you know you get vampires. Um, and so I, I I picked up very quickly on the folk horror vibe here, and I thought it was very thrilling compared to a lot of Doctor Who episodes of this period. When we have four part stories, and certainly when we have six part stories, mm-hmm. I typically don't watch them all in one go. I'll watch a couple of episodes on one day and a couple of episodes on another day, but I don't sit down and watch four episodes in a row. But I did this time. Mm-hmm. This was just so compelling. I just didn't want to stop watching. So I really enjoyed it. No, I agree. There was no dead time. That's for sure. There was no, you know, uh, uh, makeup time by running through quarters in this one. There was always something going on. 
Um, and in fact, there's some points where they cut out them going from one place to another. Where one minute they're in the they're in a building, and the next minute they're on the seashore. Yeah, yeah. There, there was yeah, there was a lot of uh, time compression with that. Uh, and uh, speaking of folklore, and, and, and that's that's part of the production history of this. They overshot, and there was discussion for a time of making this a five-parter, mm. but they didn't actually they didn't go that way, and it turned out they didn't have enough footage for an extra fifth episode, but. That's part of why they had to make the cuts they did. Ah, okay. Um, yeah, you mentioned folk horror. It reminded me a little bit of The Demons, The Demons, uh, the mm-hmm. third Doctor yep, story. That, uh, that's another one. Yeah. Yep. And uh, what was the fourth Doctor story we, we, we saw not too long ago where they were in another uh, English country village that was taken over? It was a body snatchers sort of story. I forget what the name of that one was. but um, uh, The Robots? Uh, no, it was... Uh, Aliens had taken over the village, and the people in the village were acting strangely. Uh, oh, I'd have to go back and look at it. It just it, it occurred to the me. The Loch Ness monster. No, uh, although mm. those are good. Good, remember, yeah. yeah, good ones to qualify. It was the yeah. It was it was um, the fourth Doctor and Sarah Jane. Anyway, uh, so this is also the penultimate doc, the seventh Doctor story, and the. And kind of the penultimate classic Doctor Who story. This is it. Like after this, there's one more. You know, uh, what survival? I survival. Think it is. Yep. Yeah. Uh, one more story, and then it until 2005. Apart from the Eighth Doctor uh, story, which I don't know. Some I you I don't really call it's that canon, dude. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't call it. It's 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 kind of its own thing though, because it's not really classic mm-hmm. Who because it wasn't on the BBC, and it's not really new Who because it's. it's it's also not on the BBC, yeah. but it's I get it. It's canon. It's just it's it's in its, its own realm. <laughs> well, production wise, yes. It also is a blend of classic Who and mm-hmm. New Who. If yeah. you, it has a lot of elements that were dropped uh, in New Who, but were in classic, and it introduces elements that were prominent in New, but were not in classic. Mm, right. So it it is a hybrid piece. And to be picky, it was on the BBC in Britain. It was on Fox here, but it was right. On, it was on the BBC, so. But it was yeah. produ- it was a joint production of Fox and the BBC, and that's true, why it was true. more yeah. Americanized. Yeah. Incidentally, um, since we're talking about connections to other parts of Doctor Who, so we have vampires in this uh, episode, and we've encountered them elsewhere on screen. They're in the for- in a fourth Doctor story we haven't done yet called State of Decay, which is one of the many times Adric betrays the Doctor. <laughs> And also, this episode is very much like Orphan 55, where you have this future monster version of humanity in a possible future. Just a much better version of Orphan 55. (laughs) Much better, yes. Uh, Also, now this introduces Fenric as an explanation for why the Doctor is together with Ace. Uh, He caused the time storm that brought Ace to Ice World, and he also claims credit for... um, for creating the time storm that brought Lady Painfort to the 20th century mm-hmm. in Silver Nemesis. And you may remember in Silver Nemesis, there was a chessboard in Lady Painfort's time, and the doctor made a move on that chessboard. And in this episode, he says, I recognize the significance of that. So he <laughs> saw, um, he saw Fenric's hand in uh in in the events surrounding Lady Painfort. So that's additional evidence or at least retrospective evidence that he knew what was going on with with Ace and with Fenric Fenric the whole time. Incidentally, Fenric is named after the Fenris wolf. Mm-hmm. That's why we have the wolf, the wolves of Fenric in this. Um the Fenric Fenris wolf is another creature from Norse mythology that will kill um Odin and I think Odin, but not Thor. I think it's the Midgard serpent that kills Thor. Um, and so we have the ancient one here is the Midgard serpent from Norse mythology, and Fenric is the Fenris wolf from mm. Norse mythology. Fenris also goes on to appear in um, um, in Big Finish. He's in a couple of stories uh, that form a sort of two-parter with the Seventh Doctor. One of them is called Black and White. Mm. And we were, the TARDIS is split into a like a black TARDIS and a white TARDIS, if I recall correctly. It's been a while since I've listened to it. And then the the next story is called Gods and Monsters. Mm. And it has, again, Ace at, and the Seventh Doctor against Fenric, against Fenric on a giant chessboard. 
populated with people from different times and places who are also like wolves of Fenric. And uh, Ace, uh, Ace, I'm sorry, Ace is the companion of the Seventh Doctor and Ace that we heard in Live 34, the guy named Hex. Mm-hmm. Hex features prominently in this story, and it has um, it has important consequences for Hex. It is not his final appearance, but uh, this story has very important consequences for Hex. Mm-hmm. So if you want more... Fenris, Seventh Doctor, Ace Goodness, check out Black and White and Gods and Monsters. Nice. So was was it the plan all along, do you know, to to connect this to Ice Storm, like when they or Ice World, with, with all of that, you know, it, it, they could back construct all that. But do, was this the plan from the beginning with Ace and the Doctor? I don't know for sure. I suspect that, that they are retconning it. Mm-hmm. Um, the... Uh, what I've read about the development of this story has a lot, it had a lot of moving parts and things that changed. Um, like originally it wasn't ancient poison that was going to be in the ultra machine. It was going to be a nuclear bomb. Mm. Um, and they changed it. And so the, and also this story, this story was originally, I think planned to be the, the season finale. They didn't know they were going to get canceled, but they were planning. This is the season finale and they moved things around. Also, no, it wasn't going to be the season finale because it was going to come before Ghostlight. Mm. Ace mentions that she uh, knew this spooky old house in Paravale, and that was meant as a line to set up Ghostlight. And Ghostlight was itself originally a story about the doctor's house on Gallifrey that he grew up in. Mm. And so that would suggest that they that they were retconning in this episode that it wasn't all pre-planned okay also um the doctor spends the first i don't know 20 minutes or something of the story wearing a raincoat mm-hmm. and the purpose is to hide his new darker costume right. that was originally meant to be introduced in this episode but because they rearranged the episode order it got unceremoniously introduced in uh, in ghostlight Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because he wore a, a much lighter jacket and things like that. So they're they've they've changed his costume to make him darker, quote unquote, you know, in both mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. literally and figuratively. Uh, I find it interesting this uh, story that features Soviet soldiers. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it came out it premiered in October of 1989, which is a significant mm-hmm. period in which the the Berlin Wall fell. Little, and, yeah. little did they know. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of interesting I, to, to see that because because Ace kind of is sweet on the Soviet uh, captain. army captain for some reason. Uh, <laughs> like it does, it doesn't. They don't really like develop why she suddenly has these feelings for this guy, but they 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 have these feelings, um, and even this affinity for his Soviet symbols. Uh, you know the. The hammer and sickle, which in 1989 would have struck differently than in, you know, the the early 2020s. You know, so I, I think it's it's it would have struck differently back then. Yeah, it also depends on what subculture you're a member of. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ace is clearly a 1980s rebellious teen, so you know her having her having bought a little hammer and sickle pin at a store and put it on her on her enormous ginormous jacket um yeah. would uh would not be out of place yeah she get that leather bomber jacket with all the the stuff on it uh so <laughs> it's i don't think it's leather i think it's no, it, uh i think it's it's like a nylon, nylon. It's oh, like a yeah. nylon it's it's an 80s nylon jacket where she's got a bunch of patches sewn on it right 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 yeah and she's carting it around even while she's dressed in the 1940s appropriate clothing uh at the time which which uh uh the actress wanted to do um, because she hadn't got to dress in period clothing before, so she wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. And wow, 1940s Ace is hot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, she did look very nice in those. Yes. Uh, the uh, so the 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 location is Northumberland, which is appropriate if if you know the history of the Vikings invading uh, England back you know a, a thousand plus years ago. Is Northumberland was often it's the closest basically to mm-hmm. to the Danes. But it's also the vulnerable neck of of Great Britain if you're a vampire. Yeah. <laughs> right, mm-hmm. right. Uh this the Soviet the Russian soldiers uh the accents I'm like why are Italians invading 
<laughs> England, <laughs> their accent sounded Italian to me at first. And so, it, well, yeah, it was kind of funny. I, I didn't look, but it looked like most of the uh, actors were either Polish or Polish descent, even, you know, so they were at least yeah. somewhat related ish. <laughs> yeah, it could be that the accents were fine. It just, I wasn't hearing it right. But uh, yeah, that, it, it's, it's funny. Um, so we have uh, th- this uh base this naval base that is apparently the this important crypto cryptography uh site where the secret uh, operation is going on and and you should clarify it's a naval base not in the sense that it has ships but right. it is run by the navy right correct and uh and yet ace and the doctor managed to bluster their way past the sentries which that's yeah. that's fun yeah <laughs> it's, it's, it's like the, the the uh the the guards at this place do not seem to be the swiftest guards because later on it's like we well, need to disable all the radios so what do they do they take an axe to it you know you could unplug it from the wall <laughs> maybe pull some pieces out yeah 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 you don't have to take an axe to the radio well i like uh, the doctor goes into the the office there uh with the professor and just start typing out his his permission letter and signs Churchill's signature as well as the uh, the head of the war office <laughs> while crossing his hands yeah, yeah he's, he's doing t- it both t- at the same time <laughs> and, and that that seems acceptable right oh my gosh that was funny i mean in a pre-second like paper he, era yeah 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 he he is um he comes in and and Dr. Judson the guy in the wheelchair the code breaker is immediately rude to him. It's like, what are you doing here? And the doctor manages to befriend him by displaying knowledge of things that Judson is interested in. And then in front of Judson and the secretary, he quickly forges his own pass. Yeah. And and then when the guards come in to demanding to see his pass, he just hands it to them. And neither Judson nor the secretary says anything. <laughs> yeah. About he just he just wrote that right in front of us. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the uh, the way that he ingratiates himself with Judson is uh, he recognizes the prisoner's dilemma in a in a graph on the chalkboard, uh, and then Ace also manages to uh, impress him by recognizing a, a logic puzzle mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that she pl- played with as a kid. Apparently, well, it was uh, she took a class well, in computer logic. Oh, at yeah, high school. Yeah. Which would be amazing to Judson because they didn't have classes in computer logic back then, but yeah. he kind of goes with that. Right. And just accepts her as, oh, she's an advanced computer expert. Yep. So we have uh, Commander Millington is the uh, base commander. He's in charge. Uh, his office is something. It's an exact replica of the uh, of the, the code-breaking office or the code-creating office uh, that the Nazis have in Berlin, right down to a portrait of Hitler on the wall. Uh, which the doctor says this is his way of getting into the mind of his enemy, I guess. Which Yeah, I don't know if people actually did that in yeah. World War II. I, I'm kind of doubtful. Yeah. Um, when they first introduce him, you don't because you see him sitting in his office, and he's clearly in a British uniform, but he's in this Nazi office. You, for all we know, we've, we don't know this is on the same base. We yeah. don't know he's the base commander. We just know he's a British officer. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, oh, wow, this may be somewhere else. It could be in Germany. And this guy is a secret Nazi. But no, he's just trying to get inside of Nazis' heads. (laughs) The only difference we find out later is that he's got his class photo where he and Judson were classmates at school. Right. So Judson and Millington uh, are both descendants of the original Vikings. So they're both wolves of Fenric, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. as is... Uh, the, a female code breaker uh, yep. that we'll 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 talk about in a second, and um, and Wainwright too, the the minister, yep. isn't he? Yes, he is mm-hmm. as well. Vicar. Yep. So, yeah. So the, we our first glimpse of the vicar is him getting harangued after services by uh, a cranky lady in oh. uh, the from the village about his sermon. Uh, Father, how'd you feel I, about that? I, I, that, that uh, PTSD kicked it. No, no, that, that's a little extreme. But no, it's like I, I've had conversations like that by the the back uh, door of the church and I, I could feel his pain. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I thought that might be the case. Uh, yeah. She was upset because in his sermon, he said that no one is on the right side in the war. This is world mm-hmm. war two, right? Um, mm-hmm. So that would, that would well, offend him. It would. Yeah. Uh, especially if you're British and the Nazis have been doing, you know, all their kind of battle of Brittany 
behavior. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so that that I think was a. I mean, they're trying to. They have a story, a character arc for the for Reverend Rain, Wainwright, where he's essentially lost his faith, and and so this is kind of an aspect of that. But I don't think you would be say. I don't. I I would be very surprised to be in the early 1940s in England and hear a priest saying in public from the pulpit that nobody's side is right in this war. Well, I think that was <laughs> that kind could kind of get you arrested or something. Yeah, I, I think that was kind of an anti anti war message they snuck in. By the way, that's not a new who thing apparently sneaking in messages into yeah. <laughs> an episode. It, they're a little less arrogant and in your face about it yep. in classic who though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Incidentally, Dr. Judson is based on the real-life British mathematician and codebreaker Alan Turing, who invented a machine, a decrypting machine called the bomb, which was an an antidote to the German Enigma machine. Right, right. Um, So the the church is is built over an old Viking cemetery, Viking graves, and Judson— I guess they don't have Native American cemeteries in Great Britain. <laughs> no, nope. they have Viking cemeteries. <laughs> and uh and Judson apparently is like in his in his spare time, his hobby is uh translating the Viking rune runes on the gravestones in the basement of the church. Um and what a jerk Reverend Wainwright is. His grandfather translated them all. He's got a book of them on his shelf. <laughs> and he's just letting Dr. Judson do all the work all over again. You know, maybe it's, he it's figures like, it's a way that, he, that Dr. Judson relaxes by translating. So why, you know, why do that? You know, why, 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 why ruin his fun? Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, these people have no clue what translate the difference between translation and decryption. Because runes are are an alphabet for another language. So once you read the runes, you know what it says in yes. the other language. You then have to translate it from Norse to English. Okay, f- actually fairly easy as because they're cognate languages, so they're going to have a lot of roots in common. Mm. But they keep Judson keeps getting orders from Millington the the commander to run the runes through the decryption machine. And it's like, that's not what decryption machines do. (laughs) They don't, they don't translate the language for you. They, they get it back to the plain text in the original language. And then you have to read it in the original language. So in real life, you know, the Germans were speaking German. They would use the Enigma machine to encrypt the German then the British would use the bomb to decrypt the mm-hmm. the ciphertext back into the original German plain text, and then people who spoke German would have to read it. Right, right. Yeah. See, they're, yeah. they're thinking the runes like if you've played the uh, um, 80s into 90s game Ultima, the, yes. <laughs> speaking of Ultima, which was the name of the machine in this, but that was a, a role-playing game for you know Commodore 64 and Apple II and those computers of that era. And they would have runes that were literally letter to letter. So A was one was this and B was this and you know. Yeah. And so it was more it was more of a, a decryption than it, or decoding than it was a uh, an actual translation. translation. Right, right. So maybe yeah, maybe playing off of Ultima the vid, the uh, video game, maybe. Could be. It could be. Yeah. I mean, it was it was fairly popular among those who would who would do like role playing games at, at the time this came out, so it, yeah. it very well could be. So there's a Viking curse because, of course, and uh, it talks about the uh, you know the Vikings heading back to the Northway, bearing away the Oriental treasures, and the doctor notes that the Russian orders, the secret Russian orders, which he's discovered laying about on the beach, um, mm-hmm. talk about going back to Norway, the Northway, bearing the treasure, not Oriental treasures, but of Doctor Judson, like they were going to take dr judson although it really wasn't dr judson they were after they were after the machine uh which i mm-hmm. I, I would think it's not the whole machine but just like a the, key component yeah except then it would leave behind the poison i mean you'd think they'd notice the poison inside you would <laughs> yeah. think the first thing they would do i mean come on they have guys in russia what's the first thing a russian guy is going to do upon getting this machine Take, Take it, it apart. apart. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, right. it was that part with the, it looked like a motor with the code wheel on it. And that's what yeah. they were going to steal. And the, yeah. And the poison was behind that. Yeah, exactly. Like, what's this green goo? Is it important? Nah, just leave it. 
Because yeah, the it. Russians are going to take the minimum, you know, Soviets are going to take the minimum they have to. Yes, exactly. Yeah, the whole plan is really kind of problematic from a logic perspective. Yes, it is. It is. Uh, so we meet, uh, oh, I, I didn't get her name, but Audrey's mom, this young woman, and uh, uh, the doctor is... Uh, oh, her name is Kathleen. Kathleen. And... Uh, she, the, the doctor, of course, has an immediate affinity for babies. Of course, you know, of course, uh, uh, Sylvester McCoy would be good at making baby noises uh, to amuse them. And uh, but Ace loves the baby until she finds out the baby's name is Audrey, which is her mother's name, and brings up that she has this. She really Hatred. hates her mother. Did that get mm -hmm. developed earlier? I, I'm trying to remember. It's been so long. I think so. Um, I think that's been mentioned before. Yeah. I know it comes, it, it, I'm pretty sure it comes up in ghost light. Yeah. Uh, yeah. for example. Um, but it's, it's part of, you know, Ace's backstory as a troubled teenager. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So, uh, she doesn't end up hating this baby. She actually keeps liking the baby, but she has an initially very negative reaction to hearing that the baby's name is Audrey. Right. And she doesn't realize it, and it won't be spelled out until the final part of the story, but Kathleen is um, is Ace's grandmother. Yep. Right. And Ace doesn't recognize her, and the baby Audrey is her mother. Yep. And there, there are a couple of nice beats in the arc, and the character arc for Ace regarding this, you know, we have the initial neg very negative reaction to learning it's the baby's name is Audrey. But then she, throughout the story, she has a great interest in what's going on with Kathleen. Because Kathleen is is with the other women in the code-breaking pool. Mm -hmm. And um, Milligan, the commander, has been deliberately cruel. Mm -hmm. to Kathleen and told her, get the baby out of here. It can't be on base. It can't live on base. And so she's going to have to find other arrangements for the baby and herself to live because they can't live on the base anymore. And, um, and then there are situations of danger happening and Ace keeps taking an interest of wanting to make sure Kathleen and the baby are okay. Also, and this is before she knows who they really, who Kathleen and the baby really are. There's a moment where the doctor, Ace, and a Russian uh, commander have all been captured, and they're going to be shot by firing squad. And they're standing up against a wall, and the doctor makes a little speech, and the Russian guy says something, and then Ace says, Mom, I love you, mm -hmm. just to the air. And, and, and it's her, it's her, I mean, she doesn't die, but this was what she meant to be her dying thought. Right. that she expressed was that she really did love her mom despite everything. And then in the final part of the story, in a rainstorm, um, the vampires are attacking and Ace gets Kathleen and the baby into a car and and yells at them, yells at Kathleen to start driving and keep driving until you get to London. Do not stop. Go to the house of my relative that lives in London. Here's her address. Say it out loud after me, mm -hmm. and sends them off in this frenzy before Ace herself turns and faces the vampires. And it's a very dramatic moment, and it's a really nice conclusion because now she knows mm. that this is her grandmother, and the baby is her mother, and she's sending them off to London to be safe. And um, it's a, it's a it's a really nice character arc for Ace. Mm. Yep. Uh, I did make a note as soon as we saw, as soon as they mentioned like Audrey, her mother's name. I'm like, oh, it's her mother. <laughs> like, yeah, it was, it was time public. travel show. Of course it is. Yes, yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, so they they the doctor and Ace get uh, captured by the Russians on the beach. They've been slowly getting been getting uh, massacred by the the Great Serpent, basically um, the 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 Hemovore, uh, yeah. which we haven't seen yet. And and I checked, and by the way, this great serpent creature, which looks really weird, is <laughs> not the grand serpent from Doctor Who Flux. Ah, right. yes, <laughs> right, because the great serpent, or the is from, or the ancient one, is from half a million years in our in our future. He's from Earth, whereas the grand serpent is is a leader on uh, Vendor VK's planet. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Uh, so the the Russians end up letting the Doctor and Ace go because the Doctor convinced them that he's going to solve whatever is killing them on the beach. 
uh, it's just a little implausible, but okay. Um, we have this secret lab under the church that's collecting this mysterious poison that seems to be seeping out from the, the Viking graves that nobody seems to be curious why there's this poison, this, <laughs> this vibrant green poison seeping out. But hey, what luck? We have a natural source of a lethal poison that we want, want to use as a weapon of mass destruction initially on the Germans. And I thought that was, this was an interesting aspect of this is Millington and his superiors, they're pretty, I think they're pretty convinced that the Germans are going to lose the war. I'm not sure what year was this supposed to be? The end of the war, right? Probably the end of the war. 43? So not, not, not the, they never really I mean, said, they just kind of said during the war. So yeah, uh, you know, there must be um, early, the, I would guess. I don't know. Yeah, the wiki says 1943. Uh, but in any case, like they're fairly convinced that we're going to win the war and it's the Soviets we have to worry about afterward, mm. which, you know, Cold War retrospect, of course. And there were people who expected that in World War II. Yeah. Um, I remember uh, reading a, a, a piece of an autobiography of Joseph Ratzinger, who towards, even though his family was anti-Nazi, at a certain point, they just started conscripting everybody. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so he, uh, he ended up digging ditches as a soldier for the Germans in World War II. He, I believe he, ne- he never fired a gun, but he you know, like did manual work. And at the end of the war, you know, being in a German uniform, he got put in a temporary prison camp, mm-hmm. um, you know, I mean, until the Nazi soldiers could be demobilized and repatriated. And while they're in the, uh, while they're in the, in the prison, in the allied prison camp, he and the other soldiers are talking like, okay, so what's going to happen now that we've, de- now that they've defeated Hitler is, they're just going to draft us all into the allied armies and we're going to go fight the Russians now. Mm. And, and there were people in the United States who wanted to keep, not keep this war going exactly, but to immediately attack the Soviet union and deal with them while they were still weak from the war. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we had all those, all those divisions over there already, I guess. Yeah. If you were going to do it and the the Russians didn't have the bomb yet. Yeah. Um, Right. I, I, I don't agree that that would have been a good thing, but from a, I can understand the thinking. Uh, so the vicar we mentioned before, Wainwright, is he's having this crisis of faith, and I think they don't come right out and say it, but in, it's I think it's clear it's because he's letting them use his church to create this weapon of mass destruction from the what's whatever's b- b- beneath it, and so that's I think at the root of his crisis of faith. I think also that's... the fact the Allies are bombing children mm-hmm. in, uh, I mean, they're bombing yeah. civilian population centers, including children in Germany and, and also other places like Japan. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's it destroyed his faith. His faith seems not to so much be, and I guess this is kind of typical of a certain brand of like liberal Christianity, um, not just in Anglicanism, but in his his. In the mid 20th century, in the 20th century in general, you had sort of liberal people who wouldn't be wild about saying, I have faith in Jesus Christ. They would want to, they would use more non committal things like, I have faith in, in, in goodness, mm. you know, and, and that's what Reverend Wainwright really believes in or believed in was human goodness. He's not so much a Christian as wanting to be a nice guy, and um, and then the bombing of children mm-hmm. smashed his faith in human goodness. Where even the supposed good guys, the Allies, are bombing children. Right, right. Uh, there is a scene where Wainwright is in, in his empty church, standing in his pulpit, and he's quoting from First uh, Corinthians chapter thirteen. You know, yeah. when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. Now abides faith, hope, and love. These three, and the greatest of these is, and he can't say love. And it seems weird at first until we find out later that Millington has co-opted love as the word for the destruction mm-hmm. of the Soviets, which is an interesting subtext to this mm-hmm. story, which is love has been co-opted. And Wainwright recognizes the significance of using love in that way. I thought that was mm-hmm. interesting. That was a good, that was a good uh, bit of writing there. Well, and, it's, uh, and it, it really does point to talking about the, the, uh, the poison coming out from underneath the church being used as a weapon and being collected. Lots of it. You know, we see mm-hmm. later where it's 
a room full of bombs, full of this poison. And the back-talking church lady is herself full of poison yes. in a metaphorical sense. She's she's a stereotypical Christian hater. Right, yeah. she is. And she's got these uh, two young women who, like, there were a lot of people who, who had been evacuated from London uh, during the war. Uh, Chronicles of Narnia, you know, that's, you know, if you've read those, you know that story with the, those kids. Um, and there's these two young women that she's taken in, but she's really, you know, this sort of battle axe nagging a figure to them telling them what horrible creatures are because they went swimming <laughs> wearing bathing suits and at maiden's point which yeah. is an evil location right and uh, and the two girls are kind of jerks back to her yes mm-hmm. i mean they're not they're meant to be sympathetic but actually they're also jerks yeah um and so so a pox on both their houses <laughs> yeah and and when the pox comes for the girls uh, these 1940 London girls turn into vampires with very 1980s hair <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and very long nails. Uh, yeah. They, yeah, at one point they go swimming in their clothes, and I'm like, why are they like why are they I know. swimming in their yeah. clothes? It was very strange. Uh, and and the lady wasn't wrong, by the way. It was a bad yeah. place to go swimming. Uh, it was. You get, go there, you get turned into vampires. Exactly. And actually what the lady warned them about was that you hear like you go there and you hear the screams of all the other women who've been drawn to the place. And it's like, yeah, yeah, that kind of makes sense because they're all at the bottom of the bay living tortured vampire lives. (laughs) Right, right. And I think they kind of talk about why the girls went back the second time and went in because they were they were being drawn in by by this curse, you know, and and so. Because then later on, after they've been changed, there's the, the Russian soldiers like, oh, come in. You want to come in. You're not being coerced. You want to do it willingly. Just come on in. The water's so nice. And of course, he's killed. <laughs> yes, like the sirens. Uh, by the way, the, the the lady's name is Mrs. Hardacre, which is <laughs> that's a yeah. little bit on the nose. Trait, of naming. trait name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so later on, Millington, after he does his, uh, you know, super villain monologuing to the doctor about wanting dreaming of destroying Dresden and Moscow with his bombs. Um, he, he orders, I mentioned how we order all the radios disabled. He orders all the chess sets on base to be burned. Yep. Why? What? Like, I, I think I know like, because Fenric can use it to solve his puzzle, but how did, how does Millington know this? They don't make that clear. Millington obviously has a lot of knowledge that, comes from somewhere like he somehow knew that the vessel containing Fenric would be brought to them and it turns out it's this little oriental jug yeah. although it's so aged you can't tell what culture it's from i would want to know just how just how just which orient are we talking about here <laughs> i mean vikings were known for coming west to attack so what did they i mean they didn't get as far as china yeah. Um, it, is this by the Orient? Do you just mean the Russian steppes or what? I mean, technically, Constantinople is the the seat of Asia. It's like, a, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, but, for, um, for Russians, this is a, or for uh, Vikings in, in Norway, I mean, basically all of Europe is the Orient, if you want to be picky. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. It just seems to me that this is a very Western East. Yeah. That they're talking about. But um, Millington knows that somehow he has prophetic knowledge that this vessel is going to be brought to them, which Ace ends up doing unwittingly. Mm-hmm. And so I just took his his knowledge of get rid of all the chess sets as similar because yeah. Fenric has this irresistible compulsion to play chess with the doctor. Mm. Yeah. That's that's exa- I think that that's kind of how I took it too. Was okay. Fenric wanted to make sure that the doctor couldn't reset his trap, right? Yeah. And- also, by the way, notice that the move that they propose that Fenric can use to win makes absolutely no sense <laughs> in in terms of chess because the move is instead of fighting against each other, the black and white pawns need to team up, <laughs> and it's like okay, if I'm the black, if I'm Fenris, if I'm the black player. There is no way I can suddenly seize control of all my opponent's white pawns. <laughs> yeah. That is not a legitimate move in chess. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah cheating. So uh, the, when the girls go after the vampire girls now, go after Wainwright, they tell him we were lost on the day we were born. Uh, and Wainwright says no one is ever lost, which is a, a Christian mm-hmm. 
uh, you know, uh, no one is truly lost if you can repent. But are they saying that they are also wolves of Fenric, that they're descendants of the Vikings who originally were cursed? I kind of, I kind of got that sense. Maybe. maybe, yeah, yeah. Um, the doctor's also gets challenged about his about having family, and he says he doesn't know if he has family. I thought that was an interesting line. Yeah, that's a very interesting line. It kind of foreshadows the time war. Mm-hmm. It does. It does. I mean, and I mean, we know that Susan is family, but is she still alive? Maybe is what he's wondering. You know? Yeah, but again, time machine. I have. <laughs> Yeah. Do you have family? Yes, and she's living in 2150. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just not at this time period. Right, right. So maybe that's why you say I don't know. <laughs> so the uh so while the doctor and Ace and uh let's see who else is there is Wainwright in the are in the church, the vampires attack the church, which they've noted is built like a fortress, you know, like yeah. a fort which it's actually not, but okay. It's, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like an English, you know, country village church. Uh, Ace goes up to the tower and happens to have a rope <laughs> ladder in her bag. Well, and, and then starts climbing down for no discernible reason. And it's just like, Hey, this happened in Dragonfire too, where the doctor climbed over a rail yeah. for no discernible reason. <laughs> right. and she climbs down to where the vampires are and starts to go back up again. Uh, and saved by the Soviet soldiers. That that was the the thing there. Well, of course we got the vampires climbing onto the roof of the church for reasons. At yes. least with Ace, you know, she said she wanted to go rock climbing, so you could say, okay, she's going to go use the ladder as part of her rock climbing. I guess. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's. I mean, I, I kind of took it as Ace is always prepared. Who knows what's in that bag? You know, she's got everything. Yeah. Well, obviously, uh, Nitro Nine. So. <laughs> right. It's nice for once for the Russian bullets to actually hurt the vampires. Yes. Yeah. So that's good. But then the doctor um, does something very strange. Uh, he he sings something at a very high pitch, and it causes the vampires to scream and retreat. Mm-hmm. And in hindsight, it is um, revealed that this was a manifestation of the doctor's faith, and it's the faith that drives away the vampires. This right. is a key key principle in this story, and it's why the doctor has to break Ace's faith in him later. Right. Um, but what he's actually doing is singing the names of former companions, and you can apparently hear him say Susan, Barbara, Vicky, and Stephen. Mm. So that's what the doctor has faith in. Oh, interesting. I did not hear that, but okay, okay. Because, yeah, classically in in vampire stories, the holy objects will repel vampires, but in in this, they've made it so it's not the holy object itself, but the faith of the person wielding it that sends them away. And that's how Soren, who's the the Russian army captain, um, he manages to repel the vampires by his complete faith in the revolution. Yeah, he's he's a, a good soldier of the and, revolution. He's this, a commie. Yeah, and this, <laughs> this is and this is faith in that more of the sense of like a strong trust, like a you know yeah. unbreakable trust than it is you know we think of you know faith is the evidence of things not seen, as Saint Paul says. Right, right. Uh, so they can't. They manage to escape through. Soren uh, walks through the vampires and kind of leads them away. Uh, the uh, the the doctor and Wainwright and Ace and two of the Russian soldiers escape through tunnels that lead onto the base. Uh, and the the soldiers you know hold off the vampires while the others get out. And then Millington locks them inside the tunnel to die. I mean, Millington mm. is. Really, the two remaining Russian soldiers. Yeah, yeah really cold blooded. You know, really makes Millington a, a, the villain in in much of this. Mm-hmm. Um, well, he ends up being well, he ends up becoming basically a villain, a villain. You know, kind of an assistant to Fenric to, until he's yeah. killed. So we do have the Ace does eventually confront the Doctor, like stops him. Why are you holding back what you know? Like, why are you holding back on no your knowledge of what's going on? Uh, and he he tells her he can't tell he he says I can't tell you, but why why doesn't he tell her like why can't he tell her like sometimes the doctor in all of his incarnations sometimes he just likes being mysterious you know he likes mm. to be the one who knows the most in the room, but in this he's implying that if he tells her she it'll ruin it why I don't, I didn't get that um I don't know maybe because she blurts out stuff that <laughs> yeah. like twice in this story that ruins things i guess yeah that's true she blurts out the, the the chess solution good, well it, the, the first one was oh i did good thing he doesn't know that the the runes are actually you know computer logic oh why didn't you tell me 
you know, <laughs> yeah. it's like, well, he does I now, thanks to Ace, yeah, I, and then I, the, I, the chess set. I, I, I love how, you know, they're walking through, I love how they play that re- revelation where yeah. they're walking through the woods and the doctor is talking to whoever it is and says, you know, um, yeah, we do need to go deal with Judson, but the good thing is he doesn't know uh, that, that he doesn't know this thing. And Ace just stops and says, Doctor, you should have told me. And the doctor just says, quick, we've got to get there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, but again, that's actually an example of if he told her, don't mm-hmm. say these things, yeah. then she wouldn't have. So if she'd had the knowledge, she would have been better off. But yeah, she does reveal the, the, the chess solution. Yeah. Um, although, again, if he told her, don't tell anyone how to solve any chess moves, you know, that might have been, she might have known not yeah. to say anything. I, I'm, I'm, you're asking for a diegetic reason. I know, the I know. Non, the non-diegetic reason is because they want the doctor to be mysterious. Yeah. I get that. Uh, yeah, I get it. Yeah. And, and um, this is what the seventh doctor became known for was having that bit of mystery to him, that bit of, you know, I know something you don't. Again, not to the level of new who, where it's like the doctor knows everything instantly, but. Yeah. It, yeah, it's it's interesting how they've trans they've they've been transforming the seventh doctor from sort of playful, much like the second doctor, to this more mysterious and um, darker version of himself, mm-hmm. uh, which I I gather yeah. is was the intent, and and it's he is very similar in that way to the second doctor because the second doctor would also put on this humble persona and let people misunderestimate him and use that to his mm-hmm. his advantage. And the seventh doctor definitely does that. Oh yeah, right, right. So you know, we ha- we've talked a lot about already about you know how the the story ends. Um, the the great serpent or the ancient one. Um, we have the chess sets. Uh, all the cryptography girls get vampired except for uh, Audrey's mom and and Kathleen. Actually, has there's a very dramatic scene in this with Kathleen. By the way. I, in the firing squad scene, actually, what he said was, "Mom, I'm sorry." Yes, mm-hmm. but again, it still communicates the same message. Yep. Um, and but she, there's a scene where Ace goes to see Kathleen and the baby and make sure they're okay, and Kathleen is weeping, and she's just gotten a telegram telling her that her husband Frank has has is missing and presumed dead. Yeah. Uh, due to being on a merchant marine ship that was struck by a torpedo and sank. And so Ace has to be there to deal with the uh, to deal with the emotional aftermath yeah. of that telegram. And it's a it's a moving scene. Mm. Also, there's a nice scene earlier where um, when she's first kind of alone with uh, with Kathleen, she's talking to her about the baby and who the baby's father is. And she she finds out that um, Kathleen has a husband named Frank and she's like, Oh, I didn't know you were married. Mm-hmm. And Kathleen is immediately incensed by, she doesn't say what kind of girl do you think I am? Yeah. But she very quickly turns it around on mm-hmm. Ace and Ace backs down and realizes, okay, 1940s do not assume women with babies are unmarried yeah <laughs> yes yes the implications of what uh, he said uh, uh, greatly offended um and there's a later scene which also kind of gets us into similar waters where the russian guy has been locked up the russian leader has been locked up and the doctor and ace need to get him out of the clink and so ace says um that i'll distract the guard and mm-hmm. you can get him out and the doctor is like, how? And she says, Professor, I'm not a little girl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. And and then she she basically, you know, she bats her eyes and intrigues the guard and lures him away for a private conversation, which is probably a symbol of something else. Mm-hmm. And and we and she then has this strange, flirty conversation. It was with very us weird. <laughs> that does not make any sense um yeah and i'm not sure exactly what the writers were thinking because this is not like seduction dialogue that would work in any dimension inhabited by humans no <laughs> now, you know according according to the wiki there's there is there was a line that was removed that implied that Sabalon glitz and ace did something shall we say uh well yeah um in, in the novelization apparently i mean it indicated if I recall what I read correctly, that 
there was a line in here originally that indicated Ace was not a virgin, mm-hmm. and in the novelization it said Sabalom Glitz was responsible for that. Yep, that's you. that's you. what I was implying. Yeah. So yeah, and maybe in the in the TV story they're trying to uh, imply something else without coming right out and saying it for the sake of the censors. You know what I mean? For mm-hmm. and so they had this weird flirty weird flirty conversation instead of an outright flirty conversation because you know ace is still supposed to be pretty young so and it's still i teens, think considered yeah. a, a kid's teens, show but... yeah so uh, that's the only thing i can I, think of how and weird i, I wonder i wonder too though if because you know we talked about this before uh that there was the cartmel master plan and part of that was that ace was going to become a time lady mm-hmm. and this was meant to imply that her abilities were starting to kind of come out because you know she talks about mm. being able to see things you know that aren't directly in front of her you know see what's under the ocean right. and everything yeah and I, I wonder if that's kind of where it was eventually going to go that if they had the the 27th season that it, they would have built on this scene yeah the 27th season would have been we know i was recently watching a video about it we know a good bit about it and yeah. Some of the stories that were planned for it have now been adapted by Big Finish as part of their Lost yep. Stories run. But basically, it would be like f- about four stories, 14 episodes total, mm-hmm. and Ace would have left a little, a little around the two-thirds mark. Yeah. So she might have been in three of the stories, and that would have been it for her. Yeah, mm-hmm. I saw that same video as well, and that's kind of what brought it to mind. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, it is interesting how, for much of this, the the final story, you have the Russians and the and the British soldiers are fighting, even while they're having to deal with the vampires attacking. Until mm-hmm. finally, the like because because of Millington's prodding, but finally the 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 soldier, the or Marines, they're really Marines. The Marine yeah. uh, in charge says, "Look, <laughs> let's stop fighting." You know, the two, the the, the Russian and the Marine. And work together to repel this invasion of vampires. And it's like, yes, finally, somebody's using their head. Uh, so that was kind of wild. Um, Admittedly, there was a, the British soldiers had an excuse previously in that their commander was in league with the vampires. Yes, mm-hmm. this is true. And was giving them conflicting orders. So uh, it does get revealed that the reason Soren could be taken over by Fenric, you know, Fenric jumps from Judson to Soren is because Soren, even though he's uh, uh, Soren's the Russian, Russian, guy. his did he say somebody um, a relative was British and yeah, was his a grandmother dis- was British and was a descendant of the of the Vikings. So he is also a wolf of Fenric uh, and thus susceptible to the curse. Um, and like you said, Ace is also a wolf of Fenric. So Kathleen is a descendant of the Vikings who stole the treasure. Uh, so. Um, mm-hmm. So that's why he, you know, he has this tragic end here and, uh, you know, and Ace's uh, feelings for him, you know, are part of that tragedy. Um, So the, and you mentioned how the doctor had already started to work on the ancient one to turn him against Fenric. Um, Mm -hmm. But Ace doesn't know that. And so her faith in the doctor holds back the ancient one's you know, whether he's attacking them or Fenric. And so that's why the doctor has to break her faith in him. But it, that's a very, it was a very dark moment in this story mm-hmm. where the doctor starts mm-hmm. saying these awful, awful things. Which actually ring true. Yes. Um, and, and even though the doctor says later, none of them are true, there's an element of truth in them or they wouldn't have broken her faith. Right. 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 At least, at least there's an element of, her own self-doubt, you know, in there that maybe, yeah, maybe it could be true. Um, so, and that's when we have well, the- social misfit. I think she'd own that one. Say yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's it yeah. probably the more the emotional attack, you know, the most emotionally stunted that she didn't like, but yeah, definitely she fit, fit emotion, uh, social misfit pretty well. <laughs> she does say to him, uh, you know, uh, he says, I had to make you believe, lose your belief in me. And she goes, full marks for teenage psychology. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, ouch, turn that. Uh, and then later on, they're standing by the water and he tells her, don't be frightened of the water. Um, you know, uh, love and hate, frightening feelings, especially when they're trapped, struggling beneath the surface. Don't be frightened of the water. And that's her signal to jump in the water and swim back to the beach from there for was she frightened yeah. of water before 
they established yes. it early uh, okay. when he found when they found the Russian orders on the beach. She talked about how she liked to look at the ocean, but she did not want to go swimming. She oh, didn't like that. I missed that line. Okay, okay. So uh, and and that now was, she's and that was fine. her going swim. Her going swimming was the sign that this threat had been had been neutralized. Neutralized. Okay. And uh, and that's the interesting is, is as we end, they're walking up on the beach and they see the sign that's there, you know, no swimming, dangerous undercurrents. And A says, dangerous undercurrents, doctor? And he says, not anymore. And again, some subtext. The, mm-hmm. the doctor is saying, I'm no longer going to, you know, have this manner in which, you know, this darkness about me that, you know, in our relationship or, or at least not, not getting. Or not? Yeah. Are you going to use? You know, not going to use her is, I think, what he was trying to imply the way he did. But right. Oh, I just took it as we fixed this village. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I took it as a as a as a bigger, but maybe that's just the you know the just that we fixed the village. Um. Yeah. All right. So that's that's all my notes. So do you guys have any other notes, Father Corey? So I got a kick out of the uh, baby Aud- Audrey. Supposedly, you know, a female. Uh, is actually a male played by Aaron Hanley, the young, youngest actor ever to be on Doctor Who. He actually was <laughs> this, born in 1989 when this came out, so he, it was it was new, fairly newborn. Yep, yep, that was a new baby. Uh, uh, anything else? That's it, Jimmy. So I like at the beginning of this how it really shows that the Doctor and Ace are friends. You can really feel the fact that they're that they have genuine friendship together. Mm-hmm. And I always like it when that happens, when they're able to portray that on screen between Doctor and Companions. When Millington locks the two Russians in the tunnel to die, he tries to justify it by telling this story about how he was once on a ship and a fire broke out on the ship and they had to seal a hatch in order to contain the fire, knowing that there were men on the other side of the hatch. Mm-hmm. And this was a justified decision, and he then says their screams went on for an hour. And it's like, wow, that is effectively creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, I also thought it was effectively creepy that the climax of this takes place in a thunderstorm. It's also a daytime thunderstorm, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. you know, I I think the fact that it's just raining cats and dogs, you know, as all the action is going down uh, is, is effective. I, I like that as a atmospheric device. All TV storms are thunderstorms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are no rainstorms without light, thunder and lightning on TV. That's just well, and the, this was, this is one that they, they said was at least in the dialogue, they implied that this was a sudden storm. It wasn't something, you know, although there right. was the storm is coming, you know, they had a couple of times where that line was used, but the weather, you know, the weather was beautiful. It was sunny. It was, you know, all of a sudden yeah. it just downpours. Yeah. And it had been, they had had weather tr- troubles during the shooting of this story. Um, that's one of the reasons the ground is so, just sopping mud a lot of the mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Um, incidentally, I don't know if they say this in England, but uh, down south where I'm from, one of the old time sayings, oh, younger people won't know this because younger people, um, but, uh, but if, it's, if it rains and the sun is out at the oh. same time, that is an unnatural condition, you know, because normally you expect there to be clouds mm-hmm. and that will block out the sun if it's raining. And so if it's actually raining, but it's also the sun is out, the folk saying for that is the devil is beating his wife, <laughs> ind- indicating that an unnatural thing is happening. <laughs> that is uh, not a saying I'd heard before. Yeah, but the, but the devil is beating his wife seems to fit this. Um, mm-hmm. The end of this story is yeah, kind of it's folk horror. Uh, yeah. I was gonna say, see up here, it's it's a little more wholesome. They say that in ninety days they're going to get moisture, rain or snow or whatever. Oh, interesting. If it if you if it rains when the sun's out, sun. We just call it a sun shower. <laughs> now, see that makes it sound cute. Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, all right, that does it for the curse of Fenric. And I mentioned what we have some feedback and I want to share it with you now. This is from our episode 297, uh, mummy on the Orient express, the 12th doctor story, our friend Bennett on Facebook writes Perkins, Frank Skinner, who played by Frank Skinner is a bit of a stunt casting, but he's also Catholic and speaks about it publicly. His most recent book was a comedian's prayer book. A very UK point of interest is that he was part of a team that wrote an England football song back in 1996, which is still sung by the crowds today. 
I don't know what his comedy stage show was like now, but back in the days that he drank a lot, it was quite adult. But he stopped drinking alcohol when he was 29. So hmm. uh, Frank Skinner. We I think we mentioned the stunt casting back when we originally talked about yep. this episode, too. Yeah, yeah. We, we did. And actually, uh, since we recorded that episode, I've been watching a British TV series called Taskmaster. Which is, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's, it's not for kids. This is definitely not for kids, but it, it's a lot of fun. Comedians are given these sometimes ridiculous tasks to do. And it, it's, and uh, the first season, Frank Skinner was in there and he was, he was quite funny. He, he kind of, he kind of played the, the humble buffoon type character. He was, he was kind of fun to watch. Oh, cool. Good. Excellent. Thank you, Bennett. Uh, I always rely on you for some of the uh, the cultural color on some of these uh, things that we as Americans don't get. So I appreciate that. All right, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create Secrets of Doctor Who, including Paul J., Susan D., Dominic S., Callistus M., and Kiana C. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the Secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. This StarQuest show is also brought to you in part by Jacqueline Brown, the best-selling author of The Light Series. Check out her new release, Altered, on Amazon or any fine bookstore. Learn more about her and her work at sqpn.com slash brown. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edited this episode. So we'd love to hear what you think of The Curse of Fenric, this seventh Doctor story. You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page. Or send an email to Who at sqpn.com or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing In the Forest of the Night, the 12th uh, Doctor story, or as I like to call it, In the Forest of the Night at the Museum. Until then, <laughs> Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to that. Father Cory Stika, thank you as well. Thank you, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, why didn't he translate the final inscription? It's always the family idiot that takes the cloth. That was just for you, Father Corey. (laughs) And that wasn't fair because the final inscription materialized in front of us in this episode. It didn't exist in the grandfather's time. That's right.